Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. <laughs> okay, sorry, I'm still laughing because John has already made me laugh and I'm going, I've never done an intro like this. Okay, today my guest is John Ross Bowie, who is perhaps best known for playing recurring villain and fan favorite Barry Kripke on the international hit television show, The Big Bang Theory. He also recently co-starred as Minnie Driver's husband, Jimmy DeMeo, on ABC's Speechless. John has appeared on the television shows Veep, Fresh Off the Boat, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, CSI, and Glee, among many others, and in movies such as Road Trip, The Heat, He's Just Not That Into You, The Santa Claus 3, Jumanji, The Next Level, and the cult hit What the Bleep Do We Know?, Prior to his acting career, John was a contributing writer for the New York Press and has since written and developed television scripts at Fox, CBS, and Amazon. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Jamie Denbo, and their two children. Welcome, John. Hi. So nice to be here, Renee. I'm so glad you're here. And I would love for you to share a bit about your new memoir, No Job for a Man. Well, the title comes from a a quote that my father attributed to Spencer Tracy, which went, acting is no job for a man, which is uh, not a great thing to hear from your father when you are pursuing <laughs> said career. Um, but once I, I, I went about the memoir a little bit backwards in that I had the title before I had most of the book, mm. um, which is not usually how I work, but I, I realized that that title, No Job for a Man, gave me, gave the writing a great deal of focus. So it's about my mm -hmm. relationship to jobs, my father's relationship to jobs, and what it means to be a man to a certain, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm speaking in very broad, sweeping mm -hmm. terms, and I'm maybe making the book sound a little less funny than I hope it is. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's about, it's about my father and I and how we approached work and what we thought being a man was and how we agreed and disagreed on that. And then there's a bunch of uh, dishy show business anecdotes uh, peppered throughout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very fun to read, also poignant. And, you know, while I'm not going to go over all of it because it is nuanced and it's hard to – it is hard to kind of encapsulate our books, right? Yeah. There's so much to talk about and, and a lot more that we want to deliver than what we can actually articulate sometimes. And also what was such a treat before we dive into the more relational things is that the, the memoir was packed with music and New York in the 80s and the 90s and your band Egghead and an inside look at the burgeoning UCB improv scene, what auditioning and working on actual sitcom sets is like. And I'm curious how it felt to capture all of that for you. Did it change your perspective about what you experienced at all? Um, yeah, it it did. I mean, I, I'm fortunate in that I am not a particularly Zen person. I'm not a particularly centered person, but I do have an ability to know when I've got things good, which is weird because I'm a neurotic and I'm a depressive and I've got a bunch of issues. But I, while I was in the band, I was like, this is awesome. I am in a band. <laughs> and then when we were, when we were coming up at UCB and full disclosure, one of the reasons I know Renita is because I know her sister who came <laughs> up with me at, at UCB. 
I was able to look around and being like, I am standing here surrounded by some of the funniest people in New York City, which means they're probably some of the funniest people in America. Mm -hmm. And because they busted their ass to get here, mm -hmm. I, I had just grown up there. So it was no big for me. I, I enjoyed and appreciated all the things that I had going while they were going, but it was neat and gave me an extra layer of appreciation to be forced to encapsulate them into writing. Like, how am I going to make you know how fun it was mm -hmm. to be coming up at UCB at the late 90s? How am I going to get you to understand what it's like to be in a, in a, a tour van, even when the tour isn't going that well, and, mm -hmm. and still enjoy yourself? You know, how am I going to make the reader grasp that? So it, it definitely helps you distill your experiences in a way where you can communicate them to others and hopefully have them feel the way you feel. You do something in your book when she comes back. We both did something really interesting in that we both focus a lot on smell. Mm. <laughs> that's that's interesting. That's right. And I, I was struck by, when I was listening to your audiobook, I was struck by how much you spend on you know, the, the scent of patchouli and sandalwood at the Landmark Forum and, and stuff like that, you know, mm -hmm. or, or Est at the time. Mm -hmm. It was something that even before I read your book, it was, it was a priority for me as well, because I do think that's what makes history or memoir really vital is that kind of, I hesitate to use the word sensual, but it is of or pertaining to the senses, that kind of sensual approach to things of what things felt and smelled like. I think really helps capture a reader better than just here's what happened, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And dropping them in scene. And also, I guess I really do want to, when I read a book, uh, especially memoir, I think I read memoir in part. I was just thinking about this because I kind of want to like try on that body. I want to mm -hmm. try on that life. Yeah. And I want to know what it felt like. Uh, and, you know, because we're all safe now. We wrote the books. We're mm -hmm. reading the books. And so what is it like to inhabit that experience? And especially the 80s and 90s, because especially the 90s, too, because I used to not I used to disregard the 90s a little bit. It was my 20s and mm -hmm. eh, kind of a, a wreck and, you know, just jump. I was a mess in the 90s, kind of. But it's so fun to go back now. And sort of see myself back in that era, especially when I was sort of pursuing acting, not not nearly the way you and my sister were succeeding and, and doing what you were doing. But it's it's so fun to kind of go back to New York that way and and also college, like to read about Ethica. You know, I don't know if you know this, but I went to Binghamton. Oh, I did not so get we, into Binghamton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? I didn't get oh, into Well, I was waitlisted. And for anyone listening who does not come from New York, it's a SUNY, it's a state school, Binghamton. I was waitlisted. It is yeah. the ivy of the SUNYs, though. <laughs> Are it they is, still saying that? I don't uh, know. Well, they were when I was when I was applying and not getting in. Um, oh, man. I will say this, though. Mm -hmm. As much as I had um, massive inadequacies not getting into SUNY Binghamton, I think I could speak with full authority that I definitely went to uh the prettier of the two towns <laughs> <laughs> let's not talk about it okay, yeah I, I, there are a lot of jokes about binghamton and i mean actually that makes me feel like i want to do an episode on like college towns but i think it was gorgeous and i <laughs> i, I do want to like just make clear that i had to petition to get in because i was waitlisted because i finally had fun in a social life in my last year or two of high school when i moved to port washington oh yeah and my grades slipped um, oh sure sure yeah yeah that's hilarious but it was so fun to read about that and like Okay, so so then after that, you write about being a teacher in the first year in New York and how when you worked with what was called special education. Actually, you know, it's I, I, I it's 
it's pointed out in the book that they were pulling it away from the term oh, uh, special education. They were calling it the, the high school. It was the high school I had attended. And uh, they were they had called it special ed when I was there as a student. But when I returned four years later to mm. teach, they were uh, euphemizing it as humanity center. And I bring that right. up just right. because they were there was already a move to sort of change the tone and the approach towards uh this thing into they were not mainstreamed by any stretch but there was a a a move towards not stigmatizing those kids by yes by and i just did label no, no it's okay <laughs> but that's how easy it is that is right, how easy right. it is yeah and also i'm sorry about that because i like to think of myself as a closer reader than that but thank you for pointing it out I mean, it's a real, it's a blink and you miss it moment where the assistant principal explains the uh, the change in nomenclature to me, but it is in there and it was interesting because it was, it, it's like one more demonstration of how horrifically unqualified I was for that line of work. <laughs> oh, I mean, really, people go specialize in that line of work and they threw you in and, you know, you got to have the, the experience for a year, but you write about it and, you know, it's... This is one of those moments where I really felt the poignancy and, and sort of that, well, there's so much of that in your book, but can you read that little section we talked about, they were mine for 45 minutes a day? Yeah, well, to just to give it a moment of, yeah. uh, of setup, I had graduated from Ithaca College, not a SUNY, uh, took, me year, <laughs> took me years to pay off my debt. Private college, let me let you know, private college <laughs> is what that was. But I, I graduated with a bachelor's in English and my certification to teach secondary school. And I had done my student teaching at Ithaca High School, which is a beautiful, well-funded school right off Lake Cayuga. And it is the only public school in the town. And so all the property taxes from Cornell rolled downhill into this. <laughs> uh, into this. So it's really well-maintained and nice. And the kids are, for the most part, um, happy to be there. And then I went back to my old high school in Chelsea in Manhattan and asked for a job. And they did not have a full English program for me, but they did need help. So they, God, I used the term in the book and I've already forgotten it. I am what's called a, not an emergency hire, but a, there's a, a a word where you can hire someone to teach off license. Yeah. Teach something they're not trained to teach in a dire situation and they had somebody on medical leave who was teaching in the humanities center what we would know you know kids with either uh cognitive issues or social emotional issues and i i got the gig and i was very young i looked very young i had you know i had not gone gray yet i was you know 22 looked like a senior in a tie <laughs> and showed up and one rather dark moment was the parent teacher conference where the kids were kids parents were supposed to come in and uh this is uh what i wrote about that briefly they were mine for 45 minutes a day there was a pervasive sadness and anxiety that sunk into me at that moment the world was broken past repair and some people were going to slip into the chasms that careless people left some would be able to jump over, but some were just going to be eaten by the earth. To my great shame, there was very little I could do for them. I had about, I had about 60 students and about five parents showed up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it kind of broke my heart. Yeah, and you were so young too. And those moments that strike us with such clarity when we don't expect them to, right? You, yeah. You know, and 
because it's funny, you know, some of what you describe is funny. Some of the way the students are talking to you or telling you, like, one of your your female students, oh, you look good today. Like, uh -huh. you know, it's just like kind of this. Every outfit I wore. <laughs> right. Hmm. right. I'm scared. That... To, I can remember her name, but I'm scared to Google her. <laughs> no, yeah, I know. I know. I like the way you handle that, too, because you were really young. And, you know, I I, I was curious about this. And, and I'm trying to formulate my question because here you are creating in your life and putting out work that you choose to do. And of course, it's a grind in the sense that you have to go to auditions and you have to get the next job, et cetera. But you leaned into art and creativity, which is the choice you make in the book. And I I wonder what it feels like, that juxtaposition between knowing, you know, because sometimes as artists, I think, and writers, we can think, well, the work we're doing is not that vital. We're not really changing anything. We're not really providing, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm kind of just wondering what your thoughts are about this memory and what your life is like now and how you place that. I have trouble placing it. I won't lie to you. I have trouble placing that. I had a year where I taught public high school to some at-risk students and some of them, you know, it wasn't all gloom and doom. There were some moments of some real breakthrough and there were some moments of, of uh, teaching poetry to kids who were not inclined to enjoy that. And I, I would never go so far as to say I went out there and changed lives, but I was pointed in a direction where I might have. I, I did not quit. I was laid off at the end of the year, possibly due to incompetence, but I think it was honestly just budget cuts. Mm -hmm. But it's something I struggle with. Every once in a while, I'll get an email or a direct message or something that will say like, oh, I was, you know, going through chemo and I watched Big Bang Theory on a, basically on a loop and it really helped. Or my family has uh, someone with cerebral palsy and speechless really meant the world to me. And I'll think, okay, you know, maybe I'm putting something out there. But there is a part of me, um, and this is me, and this is also a little bit of my dad talking, I think, that wonders if I should have stuck with teaching somehow if um, it would have been a more, I mean, it definitely would have been a more selfless lifestyle, but I also had seen so many people burn out and stop being good at their jobs entirely, both as a student and as a fellow teacher. And I didn't want that, you know, I didn't want to be the guy who sticks around just because he has tenure, but he sucks, you know, mm. but I wrestle with it. And I think a lot about going back to some form of teaching at some point. Interesting. You know, I think that this whole idea of worth and what we're supposed to do with our life, and especially to think that you shifted and embraced performing and comedy later on than some of the people who were at the theater at UCB, which is, which is Upright Citizens Brigade. Um, and it was really fun to read about that. Like, my, I remember when my sister was first getting involved with the theater, I hadn't even really heard about improv. And to, to hear you you know, to learn about your early experience there and how it shaped you and to know some of the names is really fun. And I think, you know, you also struggled with mental health and anxiety and uh, I guess depression. Can, is is yeah. that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. And so that is also a real risk. Comedy. <laughs> right. I remember when I was first auditioning in the city and we were, we would see standups sometimes and someone would say, what do you, of course, like, you know, all comedians are depressed. And I had no idea that that was true. But yes, it is true. I, so I don't know about all of them, but a striking amount. A yeah, striking amount. That's where you get the material. So, I mean, that idea of like, 
jumping and and going into this unknown is even scarier, right? Like, do you ever think about that mental health-wise? And I'm sure, I mean, mental health-wise in the career you chose? Well, it's funny, you know, there's a couple of things at work here because yes, going into that career was scary. So was teaching. So Mm, was, mm -hmm. so was getting up to be in a punk band. So was getting up to be in a punk band on a ska bill where we died a thousand (laughs) deaths. You know, know, there's a bunch of ways you can scare yourself. And as much, it's hard, you know, is it that I am, you know, incredibly brave or, or, you know, devoted to pushing myself? Or am I some sort of weird thrill seeker? You know, is it compulsive Mm -hmm. behavior that is putting me in, you know, deliberately putting me in emotional harm's way? I'm hesitant to say all comedians are depressed because that can point people in a direction of, well, you've got to be fucked up to be funny. And and mm -hmm. I really don't want to, I don't believe that and I certainly don't want to encourage it. Other people have said this better than I'm about to, but there is a a certain skill set that allows you to draw connections um, between disparate things. You know, the the things that can lead you to the stand-up trope of, hey, did you ever notice that? Bah, 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 bah. Those, that ability to draw those connections can also lead to catastrophizing and a bunch of like needless anxiety, uh, worst case scenario stuff that can go through your head. So sometimes they are coupled, but there are also some people who are very funny and I think are uh, very grounded and together. I think of Jim Gaffigan off the top Mm. of my head, who, you know, man of faith, five kids, Mm. works clean for the most part, (laughs) um, which I find astonishing, um, but... uh, (laughs) Or fucking astonishing, frankly, but I, um, but he, uh, you know, there there are guys who are really together and mentally healthy who are doing comedy. Um, so it they they don't have to go hand in hand. They happen to with me. <laughs> mm. And and when did you think you might write this book? Did you, you know when did you first wonder about it? And hoping you can maybe take me through any misgivings or reasons you gave yourself not to bother and what convinced you to do it? Well, there were a couple of things later on in the book. There's a chapter that has a rather uh, jarring juxtaposition in it where my father checks into hospice care because his emphysema is catching up with him. And at the same time, I go to New York and then Baltimore because my punk band is reuniting. And I have never completely come to terms with the fact that I didn't cancel the punk band reunion Mm. because my father was in hospice. And instead, I visited him during the day and then went rehearsed at night. And this coupled with the fact that I'm losing my father just as I'm about to become one. My my wife mm-hmm. was was hugely pregnant. She'll kill me for saying that. My <laughs> wife was my wife was eight months pregnant, let's say, while I was in New York and my dad was was in hospice. And I've always thought that was something that was worth sorting out somehow, that that contrast of me doing this sort of last hurrah of my 20-something hobby of being in a band yeah. while saying goodbye to my father. But it was very, it's very heavy. It's very heavy material, mm-hmm. and, and it, I, I don't maybe come off great in it either. So I put it off, and then unrelated, a literary agent, got in touch with my manager because he'd been watching my work and I guess he'd checked out my 
when I was still on Twitter, when I was still on that hellscape, um, he had che <laughs> he had checked out my Twitter and thought maybe there was a book in me. We got to talking, and the more we got to talking, the more I realized that there was a lot to my dad aside from him just being in hospice, and I wanted to kind of examine his character and mm, mm. how it created and shaped my character and how we butted heads and how we finally came to a sort of an understanding at the end. And I don't feel like we left too much unsaid. Mm -hmm. um, I would have liked him to have been around so I could kind of tell him that I understand how hard being a dad is. Mm. So my hesitations were, I think things that everyone goes through when they write something like this, do I want to air my family's dirty laundry? Do I want to air my own personal dirty laundry? How raw do I want to get in the writing of this? What is the tone that I am aiming for? Because I read a lot of memoirs leading up to this and a lot of them, a lot of creative people's memoirs about their dads, and it is a genre, <laughs> Are, are, you know, just really indicting and really just, you know, this guy was a drunk who never showed up. And that's not the whole story with my father. So I, I didn't want to go in that direction. And I wanted to acknowledge the, the messiness and the joy that comes with having a kid and having a father mm, and, mm -hmm. and just that sort of push pull that, that makes up a, a, a life properly lived, I hope. That was mm. a really long answer. No, no. I think you, you know, I also, I, a side note, although it's a really main feature of something I, I noticed in memoir and that I pursue myself, is that you talk about how you don't come across that well in that scene or in that part of the book. But I think that the more honest we are, and I've said it before on this show, but the more honest we are about who we are and what our shortcomings are that we believe, uh, you know, the way that we're imperfect the, what we struggle with, the better it is for the reader, because I think readers really see through a lot of crap anyway. And I'd much rather have a writer who lays it all out there or has at least tried to do the work to lay it out there, even if they're still confused. And I'm not saying you're in any of those camps necessarily. I'm in that most recent one, the one you just, the, the no, I, don't. I think that, no, no I, I, I'll own it. I, I'm still confused and, but laying it out there. But I guess like I, I'm, what I mean to say, okay, so what I want to clarify is that I think that you did, I'm saying to write about the confusion is right, like what we want to read. And I'm saying like, you're still confused. You wrote about it. And like, we don't ever really, I don't personally ever feel resolved about stuff. I, I just, it keeps, it's like a continuum, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, a, for me, I was just having a conversation um, on one of my socials about forgiveness versus acceptance, blah, blah, mm. blah. And that's a whole nother thing. Wow. And for me, I don't really engage in forgiveness. I, I like, it's not my thing. Like in terms of what happened in my family, it's more about acceptance. Like I understand the facts and I accept that that happened. Mm -hmm. And now I'm trying to figure out what I feel about it all. And I guess what I'm saying is like, I, this is a very clumsy way for me to tell you that I don't think you come across badly. I think in your pursuit of trying to figure out why you couldn't have done better, you come across as like a very real and accessible narrator. Oh, well, that's, that's nice to, that's nice to hear. <laughs> I, um, I, as you say that, I can hear how you're not taking that in, but that's, no, I, I am, I'm taking it in, you know, I'm reading, um, I'm, I'm listening to your audiobook right now of, of when she comes back, but I'm reading on paper, the new David Milch, uh, autobiography, Life's Work. And I don't know how much you know about David Milch. He's the guy who co-created NYPD Blue and created Deadwood. And mm, he's love maybe, Deadwood. Yeah, he's maybe one of the best 
writers for television of our lifetime. He is also a degenerate junkie and gambler who thrust his family into $23 million of debt at the track. And I'm at that part right now, and his relentless candor that isn't just like, it isn't sensationalizing his transgressions, which I think is another risk with memoir writing, is you can kind of like, uh, look at this gross shit I'm doing. Isn't it kind of mm -hmm. fun, you know? Mm -hmm. He really gets into why he did this and what, you know, he takes responsibility, but he very much looks into the root causes of this kind of behavior. But it is so raw and it is so honest and it is so, you'll be shocked to learn, beautifully written <laughs> that, yeah, I think you make a very good point. I think there is something to hearing his honesty that hopefully will lead him to forgive himself or at least accept himself. And it sounds like he's gotten to a place of acceptance and, you know, makes every, makes your own shortcomings or transgressions feel a little, uh, maybe not quite so awful. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk about your, can we talk about your dad a little bit? I sent sure. you that excerpt. I would love for you to, if you want to introduce that a little bit and then, uh, as you see fit and then read that short part. This part of the book happens right after I'm, I'm starting to make a bit of a footing in acting, and I um, had booked a role in the film Road Trip, which was my first movie. Most of my work has been in TV, but Road Trip was my first, you know, people can go to a theater and see this. And short, one-scene role, but my father had seemed kind of nonplussed by it. He, uh, I remember him calling me and telling me that it was no Citizen Kane, but you and the other kids were cute, <laughs> which is amazing because if there's ever a film has had pretenses towards being Citizen Kane, it's Todd Phillips' <laughs> road trip with Tom Green. But then later he had, he had done something really interesting where he had been talking to his mother, my grandmother, about it and talked about how the scene was fine, but he really loved seeing the family name go up the uh, screen at the end. <laughs> And I was struck by that, and I, I said to him, and here's where the excerpt starts, you didn't even seem that excited about the movie when it came out. Oh, well, I guess I'm just jealous, he said, with a nonchalance that one would use for a slight change in health. I had a fever. My bunions are acting up. I am jealous of my son. I was furious. This seemed like a betrayal of the social contract. You should want your kids to do well. This might even have seemed like a contradiction of the American dream itself. You should not only want your kids to do well, you should want your kids to exceed your accomplishments. This was, this was unpatriotic is what it was. Well, don't be, was all I could muster. And he said, I'll try. I think so many people, and definitely a lot of memoirs, struggle with the disappointment of parents, like parents who have not acted like the parents we wanted them to or you know even like from a young age I think even as a young boy you knew that your dad was maybe not doing what he could have done for you and you know you you describe his approach to you at times and your success as a quote fascinating mixture of pride and condescension so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about when you first identified his behavior as being a shortcoming of his and not about you, and if you were able to hold on to it, you know, that idea of shame hmm. in your memoir? Yeah. As far as my father's shortcomings, I, my parents separated when I was seven, and I 
stayed with my mom and there was never any discussion that I wouldn't stay with my mom for most of the time and have sort of a, you know, visitation rights and go out to see my dad every other weekend. And that was sort of, there was no messy custody battle. It was just established mm -hmm. that I was going to stay with my mom. And because my dad was a bit of a drunk, it was very clear to see the surface level issues with my father. He would come home every Friday night with what I called his Friday night face. Mm -hmm. And he would, this would be accompanied by erratic, unpredictable behavior that would sometimes be very ebullient and joyful and fun and other times be very uh, maudlin and bitter and would occasionally turn throwing things violent, but not mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I got spanked. It was the 70s, but I never got like hit in the face. He took a swing at me once, but he missed. So it was very clear to see like, okay, dad is a drunk, boom. And my mom didn't do a whole lot to dissuade me of that. And she kind of did a thing that I think that happens in a lot of divorces where she kind of good copped his bad cop a little bit, which was not entirely fair to him, mm -hmm. especially with the very young, impressionable kid. So that's one level of behavior. Then as I get older and it becomes clear eventually that everything I'm doing isn't quite enough. And when am I going to go back to teaching? And once I start acting, once I start making a living, well, like, why aren't you doing Shakespeare? And it eventually came to a point with this moment, with this moment of him admitting that he's jealous of my career, because I think he harbored deep, deep rooted aspirations towards entertainment. This was the moment where I was like, oh, this might not be about me at all. Yeah. And when you were writing the book, did you have a real sense of the patterns and themes and what had happened in your relationships? Or did you e explore that like and discover some on the page? I had some idea of the patterns, but I discovered a lot of it on the page. And I really think more people should go through this process, whether they publish or not. But if you... There's a certain trap to like getting stuck in like this is my narrative and this is who I am and this is what it will how it will always be. That's not what I'm recommending. What I am recommending is like notice certain things that keep coming up in your life. What are your themes? Why are you drawn to that? And what got you there? And move towards acceptance or maybe even forgiveness. I keep coming back to those words since you've introduced them. <laughs> but your life makes sense. You know, your life really does make sense. It will seem sometimes like it is being written by a madman, but it really does <laughs> make sense. And things lead to other things. And my dad was a massive fan of TV and film and theater and introduced me to all sorts of stuff that I might not have found on my own. Uh, my mom was too, to a lesser extent, but my dad was like the guy who, you know, would you know, we would we would sit up and we would watch old movies on Channel 5 in New York late at night, or mm. we would um, go to see movies at revival houses in Manhattan. He's the reason I got into this line of work. And I think <laughs> deep down, he wanted to pursue it too, but felt it was impractical. Mm. He had hardworking Scottish immigrant parents who, you know, might have found it a little frivolous. So he never pursued it in any meaningful way. And when his son took the time and took the risks to do so, I could see where that would bump him. You know, I could see where that would 
bother him a little bit that, and part of it was because I didn't not have a massive financial cushion by any stretch, you know, and there was a lot of very lean years, but I was in a pinch able to borrow some money from my dad mm. to join SAG. And I was able to pay him back inside of like 60 days, but I did need to borrow money from him to do so. And, you know, that's part of me owning my privilege. But I think there was a sense of me living stuff because of the opportunities that he had provided me that I think bumped him. And I'm sympathetic to that. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess you kind of mentioned it before, too, that parenting is so complex and you have a different perspective a little bit now that you're a dad of two. Yeah. You know, not not that, you know, I and again, like I have an ongoing conversation about motherhood and parenting and, you know, I I have two kids too and yeah. you know, and I know that's a whole other thing to talk about, but you know, I still think there's always that we can still want what we wanted or wish for what we wanted in our parents even though acknowledging while acknowledging what they couldn't do, but still pining for what we wished for and appreciating mm -hmm. what they went through. It's like that you know, melange. It's just like an ever-present thing, you know? Yes, 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 definitely. Did, was there anything craft-wise, like in the actual nuts and bolts of writing that challenged you or made you frustrated? Yeah, um, all of it, but specifically, <laughs> but specifically, you know, you want to still honor the show don't tell rule, even though you know exactly how you were feeling and, you know, you even have a clear idea of how the other person was feeling. And there are moments where I break that rule where I, you know, I say I was furious. That is mm -hmm. me telling you how I felt. Mm -hmm. But there's other moments, I hope, where it's a little more scenic and it's a little more, I was able to take a sort of directorial distance from what mm -hmm. had happened in my childhood. And instead of talk about like how overwhelming New York can feel sometimes, just talking about being on the above ground subway platform mm -hmm. at Queens Plaza and seeing just this wall of windows just you know 30 feet away on the other side of the tracks of all these people's lives going on yeah. right by the subway and just feeling like no one has any privacy at all mm -hmm. while I'm trying to have kind of a semi-argument with my dad on the, on the platform at, at the Queens Plaza subway station. So I, that was a moment that felt a little more showing you rather than telling you how overwhelming and privacy-depriving the city can be. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. I aimed to have more of those moments and fell short, but that was something that I, <laughs> I, um, I, I, I worked towards. I'm just laughing because uh, you keep like telling me why the book is not successful in your eyes, but um, it's, it is successful. And I remember no, that I think scene. It, I think it's funny. I think it works. You know, I just think <laughs> there's, um, you know, I, I, I just, I, you know, I've, I've got, if I write another book, it's going to be about discovering my ADHD as an adult and and <laughs> how it leads you to the sense of perfectionism but doesn't quite give you the tools to achieve that perfection <laughs> um, right that could be yeah. really tough on a person you know when we first uh discussed that you were going to come on the show you were recording your audiobook and you know in our last few minutes you know I'm going to ask you about your favorite memoirs too but do you have any advice for recording an audiobook or any takeaways from that experience you know, it is a lot of stuff that I knew already but had forgotten and had to kind of relearn. It is its own skill doing an audiobook. And doing an audiobook of your own memoir is a whole different separate oh, skill. Yeah. You know, it's mm -hmm. the way like it's 
you know, it's the way auditioning is different from acting. It's the way doing an hour-long drama is different from doing a multicam half-hour sitcom. It's just its own beast. But the key thing, try to talk to one person. Mm-hmm. Try to use that NPR rule of speaking to one person. Not, hey, everybody, come over here. I'm going to tell everybody a story. But you're talking to one person, which you are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very unlikely that your audiobook is going to be playing in a crowded bar. You <laughs> are likely in someone's headphones or on their radio or uh, in their car and you are talking to one person and you want to hold that person's attention. What does that sound like? And I had a great director who kind of uh, helped me with that. And and we did chapter one. No, we actually did. There's a very short chapter at the beginning of the book and then there's a longer one. And I got to the end of chapter two. And by the end of chapter two, I'd gotten into a groove and she was like, I think we should go back and uh, do the beginning mm-hmm. part over. And I was like, I think you're right. So we did. It took a little more time than I expected, but I'm glad I did it because it took me a while to get into the saddle. And it was nice to be able to go back and, and correct the beginning of the book. Yeah, for sure. And you can really tell the difference too, right? Like yeah. once you get oh, cooking, yeah. mm-hmm. like anything, once you get cooking, you realize, oh yeah, I was not there before. Yeah. Yeah, very strange thing to read your own words about your own life experience and the emotional parts of that and like relive it on the audio. Like and strange. then and, and you you do this too, and then to do voices for people. Oh, that was really weird. Some of whom I, are still alive. Yeah, by the end I was like, wait, I hadn't actually planned on like voicing my mom. I'm really freaking out here. That's really weird. I made my stepmom Carol sound much more Midwestern than she actually does, but <laughs> I I don't have a gift for mimicry, so I had to do kind of broader strokes for everyone. It is my way of apologizing to Carol if she's listening to this. <laughs> Sorry, Carol. Also, before I ask you my final question, I have to uh, shout out to your wonderful wife, Jamie, who I love. And you have mentioned her several times in your book and, you know, in such loving and generous ways. And also you are always talking about how funny she is. And I just love that she's in the book. I was so excited when you got to meet her in the book. I was like, oh, my gosh, is this Jamie? It is Jamie. And, um, yeah. yeah, I love that lady. So, yeah, just, hey, Jamie. So, John, are there memoirs that you particularly admire? Um, I know you mentioned the David Milch one, but just, you know, their titles and authors. And then I'll add that to our, you know, our show notes. Well, there's one that I, I put off reading when it came out because I thought the whole thing was insufferable. And the guy was only a couple of years older than me. He was like 30 to my 28. And mm. I was like, oh, <laughs> fuck this guy entirely. <laughs> and that's Dave Eggers, who wrote mm-hmm. the, the memoir, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, which, was, which also pissed me off to no end, even though he's, <laughs> even though he's kidding. But I don't know what inspired me to eventually put aside my prejudices and read it but I'm so glad I did and it was a seismic event for me reading that book because he talks about he lost his parents when he was a teenager both parents and he had to raise his younger brother basically Mm. and it's a very painful and scary story but it's also incredibly funny and he's got a wonderful dry wit that carries throughout everything he's doing and he has a wonderful sort of recurring motif in the book about the lattice. Have you ever read it, Renny? No, but I mean, I should. It, there's a wonderful thing he talks in there, and I actually have the quote in front of me because I knew you were going to ask me this. Mm-hmm. And uh, check this out, okay? 
You wear snowshoes when the snow is deep and porous. The lattice work within the snowshoes oval distributes the wearer's weight over a wider area in order to keep him or her from falling through the snow. So people, the connections between people, the people you know, become a sort of lattice. And the more people you know, and that know you, and know your situation, and your story, and your troubles or whatnot, the wider and stronger the lattice, and the less likely you are to fall through the snow. And I think about that a lot. And I kept going back to that. Now, that can have sort of a selfish motivation. Like, I just want to air my shit out so it isn't on my mind anymore. But Mm -hmm. also, you can connect to somebody's discomfort. You can connect to somebody's suffering. And the reader, it isn't necessarily a bad thing to take that on from from the memoirist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if it's executed well. Yeah. It's done with uh, introspection and generosity. And... and it is. And the other two things that, the other two books that, that prove that to me, there's Darkness Visible by William Styron, which is a very short memoir about his struggles with depression. Um, this is the guy who wrote Sophie's Choice, who you'll be mm-hmm. shocked to learn had some issues with depression. But he <laughs> he wrote a memoir called Darkness Visible that was one of the first books I read when I started to lose my shit in my late 20s. And I was like, oh, this is clinical. This is a real thing that's happening. And the way he wrote about it was so accessible, so clear, and so insightful that I immediately felt like 15 to 20% less crazy. Mm-hmm. And then there's another book about depression, the first chapter of which is sort of a memoir of the writers. Andrew Solomon wrote a book called The Noonday Demon, which is, uh, I think he calls it an atlas of depression. And it's a history of how we have diagnosed this from like, you know, this person is led by pixies or haunted by Mm -hmm. demons to, Mm -hmm. you know, early 20th century melancholia or hysteria Mm -hmm. to our modern understanding of what depression is. But his first chapter is how he dealt or did not deal with it He talked about the intestinal price of depression Mm -hmm. in a way that I'd never seen discussed before. And Mm -hmm. I was like, why can't I keep food down? Why do I have diarrhea all the time? What is happening to me? Mm -hmm. Why is this so physical? And his writing in The Noonday Demon was the first time I'd seen anyone else articulate this. And it was really soothing. So yeah, the the lattice, man. You know, they all built these lattices and distributed the weight and... And it helped us understand them and ourselves. Wow, thank you. You know, I'm excited about that because I, I – and what was the David Milch book called? Uh, it's just called Life's Work. Thank you. Okay, good. I'll list those all in the show notes. And, and John, where can people find you if they want to connect with you or, you know, learn more about the book? I am struggling with social media, but I'm still there. Uh, it, I'm at John Ross Bowie on Instagram and the book will be available wherever books are sold. Audio or my local mom and pop has it. It will, uh, it's on the Barnes and Noble site, wherever mm, you find. Great cover too. Great cover. Uh, the great Emily Flake, a New Yorker cartoonist, uh, did that cover and I'm, I'm really happy with it. Yeah, it's cool. Oh yeah. I mean, This was a great conversation. I know we could talk forever. Like, I actually, can you imagine if we had Jamie on this conversation too? Forget it. We would just be like streaming for like 24 hours. It would go for a while, yeah. (laughs) I don't mean that Jamie talks a lot. I mean that the three of us together. Oh, I do. I'll go ahead. I'll go out on that limb. (laughs) Thank you so much for being my guest and and congratulations on your book and really excited that we got to do this. Renee, thank you so much for having me. It really meant the world. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, 
please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.